0: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC.
1: If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss.
0: Welcome to the new books network.
1: Hello, and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today Dr. Sami Parna Samanta to tell us all about her book, just published by Oxford University Press in 2023, titled Meat, Mercy and Morality Animals and Humanitarianism in Colonial Bengal from 1850 to 1920. This book, I think, is really interesting for what a complex subject it tackles and sort of disentangles into individual pieces, as well as putting back together to help us understand all sorts of debates around humanitarianism, around vegetarianism, around colonialism. Um, so there's a lot to be getting in here. Uh, Sami Parna, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
0: Thank you, Miranda. Thank you so much for inviting me to talk about my book.
1: Well, I'm pleased to have you, but before we get into the book itself, could you please introduce yourself a little bit and explain why you decided
0: to write this? Yes, of course. So uh, I am a historian of South Asia. I teach at uh, Jindal Global Law School at OP Jindal Global University in India. I uh, studied history at the University of Calcutta and history of science and medicine at Florida State University, where I got my PhD. So my research interests uh, primarily lie at the intersection of colonialism, British Empire, histories of science and medicine, environmental history, and public health. And I focus on uh, early on late 19th and early 20th century uh, Bengal. And at uh, Jindal Global University, I teach courses on modern South Asia, I, uh, you know, teach courses on law and the British Empire and global histories. And uh, prior to joining JGU, I taught at uh, Georgia College and State University, uh, which is in Millichville, United States, for about uh, six years. So uh, that's uh, pretty much about my, uh, you know, academic training. So why I decided to write this book. All right. So uh, the genesis of the topic can be sort of traced back to my uh, years as an MA student in the University of Calcutta. So, you know, for one of our fields, uh, we had to read this piece on agrarian history of Bengal. And I remember this uh, reading this piece on economic history, agrarian history, by uh, this very renowned historian of Bengal, uh, B.B. Chaudhuri. And his article sort of elucidated how agricultural productivity fell during uh, mid-19th century Bengal. And it's one of the footnotes that really caught my attention. He discussed uh, how cattle plagues and high trades affected agrarian productivity. You know, he mentions that there were huge cattle moraines. And I didn't quite know what that meant at that point. I assumed that it's going to be some sort of a, a disease. But but that was it. You know, it was just sort of a footnote that was left hanging. And there was no uh, not much information on why these animals were dying, what's going on. And as this young starry-eyed student uh, was really keen to explore the archive, I sort of decided to dig deeper onto the story, and thus began. Uh, I began my, uh, you know, first sort of forays into the West Bengal State Archive and my research. So there, I sort of stumbled upon tons of rich primary source data on hide trade and slaughterhouses and animal disease, and and several of these municipal reports and medical sanitation files that I came across pointed to these really fascinating historical realities that I knew very little about. And I think it was precisely then that the topic for my book began to gain shape. And I knew that there is an intriguing story out there that I would really want to share with a larger scholarly community, you know? And, and and by then I'd graduated from the University of Calcutta and I traveled to the US as a graduate student, uh, a PhD, uh, enrolled in the PhD program, at Penn State and later at Florida State and at grad school uh I started reading much of the secondary literature and uh, I took courses on environmental histories of North America, South Asia and Africa which sort of helped refine the focus of my uh of my you know ideas and what I noticed is that like several other british colonies in british india there was a very strong preoccupation with plants and animals. You know, animals were particularly used as laborers, as sources of food, as energy for transport. However, I really struggled to find adequate literature on histories of domestic animals in the Indian context and I could sort of identify three broad sort of trends on scholarship related to non-human animals in South Asia. Right? So, One really focused on wilderness, big game hunting, uh, sport hunting or shikar, how uh, rules of shikar changed with the arrival of the British, you know, how the Mughal shikar sort of uh, differed from the more, you know, British uh, sport hunting, notions of masculinity and hunting, wildlife conservation. And a second trend uh, focused on cattle ecology that analyzed how colonialism sort of wreaked havoc on indigenous cattle economy. And a third trend tended to look at the very, you know, the the privileged animal of the subcontinent, the holy cow, right? That these scholars studied how cow became a rallying ground for religious mobilization during the 19th century. So, So overall, it seemed to me that domestic animals in India uh, particularly in urban spaces, remained sort of marginalized both within South Asian studies that sort of continued to be anthropocentric, and also within the field of Amer- of animal studies, you know, that focused more on histories of North America and Europe. So I had two goals in writing this book. First, uh, my book was meant to be an intervention that fills this sort of gap in South Asian. Uh, historiography by co-opting non-human animals into the study of empire building. And second, I consciously wanted to move away from the much-studied uh, tiger and the cow. And instead, I wanted to really examine the somewhat you know, under-theorized domestic animals in urban and rural spaces. And I was more interested in sort of investigating this larger colonial paradox That why did the British, who are so bent on hunting, uh, concern themselves with animal protection at all? And uh, as I began conducting primary source research, I realized that I didn't end up, you know, merely telling a bunch of stories about different kinds of animals, but that I was able to show that there is a connection between them, you know, that that why at all are the British responsive towards animals? What kind of animals are they protecting? What are they not protecting? Right. Uh, for instance, uh, uh, calls for the Grant, who was the founder of the Calcutta Society for Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, the CSPCA, was deeply moved by the death of his Persian cat, pet cat, and he, uh, you know, his mourning and dedicating oaths to the memory of his cat and uh, but is the CSPCA really protecting stray cats and dogs in the streets of calcutta no so i noticed that there was a you know implicit logic behind uh, the including and excluding the certain animals that they wanted to protect that the animals that made their way into my uh, english language colonial archive was largely uh, meat producing cattle and draft animals so uh So, yeah, I think uh, the book sort of seeks to bridge that gap, you know, between the fields of South Asian studies and the somewhat lesser addressed historical trajectories of domestic animals. And uh, in in writing such a narrative, a book, I tried to demonstrate that uh, histories of humans and animals are actually very deeply intertwined.
1: What a brilliant introduction to the book. Um, Thank you so much for that. I think it gives us just a great foundation to discuss the book further. Um, You've already mentioned a few things. I'm like, oh, yes, let's get into that in more detail. Um, So what a great um, background, really, an introduction as we continue. The first thread that you've mentioned that I'd love to pick up is about the CSPCA. Um, you've explained kind of what its name is. And of course, it sounds like, at least in the UK, what we might be familiar with even now of the RSPCA. To what extent is that comparison sort of the point? Can we think of them as corollaries or analogous? What is going on here?
0: Right. That, that's a brilliant question, Miranda. So uh, the CSPCA was founded in 1861, I believe, so roughly 20 years Uh since the foundation of the RSPCA in London, and uh, it's interesting that the CSPCA was also one of the you know earliest humane societies in all of Asia, right? So it was founded by Goldsmith Grant, the gentleman that I just mentioned um, earlier, uh, Lord Elgin, the then Viceroy, was its patron. So uh, in terms of the demographics, in terms of the composition of the CSPCA, it was a sort of a conglomerate of uh, pretty rich, propertied, uh, you know, this Hindu zamindars, as the landlords and very well-to-do Muslims and uh, Christians, predominantly male. But when we look at the objectives of the CSPCA, uh, in many ways it seemed to mirror those of the RSPCA in London, as you uh, sort of uh, mentioned. Except that, you know, you're going to have to toss in the complexities of a colonial situation. And uh, colonialism, uh, in my opinion, has a tendency to make things messier. So, uh, so there's that. So uh, so we, we do notice some of the familiar tropes of uh, civilizing mission, you know, and a good degree of vigilante here as well, among, particularly among the Bengali members of the society. For instance, uh, if you look at uh, the 1900s, some of the reports, annual reports of the CSBCA, in 1900, this Hindu, Zamindar Rai, uh, Ishachandra, Bahadur, uh, sort of pleading the magistrates to punish the law, class Bengalis because the spread of cruelty to animals was, according to him, strongest among the lower orders that, and I'm quoting him, whom education influences had failed to reach, who can only be um, deterred by pains and penalties of law. So, So the element of class bias was sort of evident and sort of similar to what we see in the RSPCA and there have been studies on the RSPCA as well, right? Janet Davis writes about it extensively. So uh, what I found particularly interesting is how both the English and the Bengali members of the CSPCA, or if not English, let's say European, European and the Bengali members of the CSPCA were sort of preoccupied with an attempt to understand the origins of cruelty in the human psyche, you know, and in human society as a whole, and finding, you know, trying to find measures to eradicate it. And in searching for these answers, we notice uh, the competing claims to locate kindness as an innate virtue within their own individual morals and ethos. So, on one hand, while the CSPCA sort of aligned itself with the larger forces of you know moral and social reforms in England during the period, right, drawing largely from the RSPCA, having strong missionary impulse. Influenced by the vegetarian movement in England, so there's that going on, and on the other hand, there was also a tendency to situate the CSPCA as a uniquely Indian body you know and it's this tension that I find quite intriguing and sort of runs throughout the Bengali mental world in their engagement with animal protectionism so so what's going on here is that the Bengali members sort of lauded Victorian and Christian kindness towards animals. And on the other hand, they attempted to trace the roots of humanity towards animals. And I'm actually quoting some of the members here. In the ancient Hindu texts, like the Rig Veda, the Samavedas, you know, the Upanishads, uh, Pyarijand Mitra, for instance, who was a prolific Bengali writer, a journalist and a librarian, a glorified kindness as a, as a Vedic monopoly and he proudly declared, and I'm quoting him again, that uh, if in any country such a society can meet with success, it is in India. right So So these elite Bengali members uh, sort of in their advocacy of a Victorian kindness to animals and a very Vedic Aryan humanism, often found themselves in the sort of interesting uh, dilemmas you know and sort of tensions about uh, how to uh, how to maybe reconcile indigenous traditions with those of uh, metropolitan ideas coming from England coming from the RSPCA in this case so so yeah
1: no thank you for that um i think it's it was very striking to read the acronym in the book and go, hang on a second, that sounds familiar. Um, What's going on here? So it worked, I think, really well as a starting point into a number of these debates. um, In a lot of ways, kind of across multiple different sub areas, this bigger question you've raised of reconciling um, between what's happening with British colonialism and existing traditions and ways of understanding. And you talk about this um, a bit further in the book around ideas of of medicine and kind of what counts as medicine and what does veterinarianism mean? Can you take us to this part of the book and help us understand how the story of cattle plague and what veterinarians should and should not do about it exposes reconciliations
0: around medicine in this area? Yes, absolutely. All right. So uh, so I, I talk about the, uh, you know, let me just talk about the Cal- Calcutta epizootic of 1864, as it came to be known as, and, uh, you know, the subsequent cattle plague Uh, outbreak in uh, different parts of Bengal and sort of, uh, you know, sort of tied to uh, indigenous responses to colonial interventions, all right? So, so, So this massive cattle plague was a major sort of dent in the agrarian economy of Bengal. There was absolute panic, severe panic in the colonial camp to this monstrous, uh, you know, mortality and the resultant commercial losses. Uh, and cases of cattle plague first came to British attention from, nine, from 1850s onward, I think 1852-53 uh, onward, all right. And and, and, the, and the last decade of 19th century uh, pretty much saw frantic colonial attempts to produce systematic knowledge about cattle diseases through surveys and reports and the ultimate need to create a network of veterinary boats and dispensaries and qualified surgeons who could substitute what they consider to be, you know, the village um, quacks with their professional uh, training. Now, there there are works, There, are, uh, there's a, a, a scholarship that sort of examined the history of animal disease in India. So what I do are primarily two things. I uh, study how the colonial project of first identifying the disease, then naming it, and eventually uh, diagnosing the disease was this powerful sort of hegemonic exercise, you know, that sort of subverted indigenous knowledge systems. Because the native farmers had their own ways of understanding and dealing with the disease, right? There were local names that circulated in the villages. They would call it uh, guti. they would call it Mata, all of which are dismissed by the officials, you know, anyway, as being, you know, native mumbo jumbo. And what is so interesting is that you see how the politics of diagnosis became more about controlling human populations than animals, because you see quarantine was not really a novelty among local farmers. They would often, anyway, separate sick animals uh, from the rest of the herd. And you do find such instructions in quite a few Bengali uh, agricultural manuals, you know. Uh, however, the British surgeons' uh, mistrust of native healing techniques is quite uh, telling, because here you have um, Farrell H. Farrell, who was a pretty well-known uh, veterinary surgeon. And he would begin his assessment of cattle mortality by discussing the characters of indigenous communities of Bengal and Assam. And and those are pretty revealing, you know, uh, the idea of the native indolence and apathy and superstition uh, and thereby their resistance to uh, what they call the English methods of treatment. Right. So it it is true, though, that there were quite a bit of resistance among the local farmers towards um, slaughter and culling. Uh, the Bengali middle class at this stage is pretty removed from the woes of the farmers or animals dying. They wake up much later when they began to miss out on their mutton curries and chicken curries, but they haven't sort of gotten into the debates as of now. But the failure of rinderpest to sort of uh, and cattle plague uh, to respond to most of these Western therapies really made it a very difficult disease to be sort of dealt with. You know, it not just challenged the superiority of uh, Western therapies and Western remedies, but uh, I mean, in terms of the politics of it, it also sort of emphasised the political vulnerability, right, of colonial rule. So, if we go back to your question about uh, you know reconciliation and the varied responses towards disease, uh, we notice multiple strands. You know, there was yet another strand within uh, these um, indigenous response towards cattle disease, uh, a sort of collective paranoia among Bengalis about the crisis of cattle health. You know, that sort of feeds into a more, I would say, a nationalist lament about uh, the sort of fall from grace with the arrival of the British. Here you see that the colonial state is the absolute enemy you know, and you see many of these men, like for instance, Jyotindra Mohan uh, Tagore, who was the secretary to the British Indian Association and Landowners Association, attacking colonial land revenue policies and, you know, and, and, and sort of that sort of reinforced the vulnerability of, of Bengal's livestock economy, right? So, what you see is that till the mid 19th century, this uh, ideas, uh, veterinary thinking among the Bengali land-owning classes sort of structured more around the health of the livestock economy rather than that of diseases, you know, of organs and tissues. But as we move more towards the end of the 20th century, something new happens. And I find this quite interesting, fascinating, is that well, the sentiment of compassion towards animals was not a novelty in India, right? There have been goshalas and uh, you know these uh, cow sheds and animal sheds throughout you know the history of India, but its contact with the Raj, with the British, uh, sort of lent a different color to it. That compassion was no longer a commitment to the virtue of uh, ahimsa. You know, non-injury to a living being, but it also implied loyalty to science, to Bigan, and the best example of the sort of mingling of a very sort of Vedic Hindu ahimsa and that of a very Western science is the foundation of the Belgachia Veterinary uh, College and Hospital in 1896, which is actually uh, pretty close to where I live in Calcutta. So, uh, that this this college was are uh, absolutely instrumental in sort of dealing with epizootics like uh, cattle plague and rinderpest and animal cruelty alike. Um, animals with contagious cases were often removed from the Calcutta, uh, you know, gokhana, which is, uh, you know, the cow sheds and the animal sheds and brought to the Belgachia Hospital for treatment. We see that a veterinary assistant uh, was appointed to sort of picking out uh, infectious cases an ambulance from the hospital was permanently stationed right and uh, so so by 1900 a more sort of humane dimension was added to the veterinary initiatives as the the as a hospital attached to the veterinary college also came to be registered as an infirmary under the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals Act of 1820 uh, of 1890 so I would say that there was a sort of varied indigenous responses, you know, and uh, the, again, to go back to your question about reconciliation and the sort of in-betweenness, uh, you know, that sort of appropriating a bit of Western science and on the other hand, you know, bringing in a bit of the Vedic ahimsa, and you see that sort of hybridization throughout the story. Uh, uh, what when I say varied responses, indigenous responses, I mean that it often depended on your caste, location, right, on the class and the social status, on property rights, whether you're land owning, whether you're a poor farmer, right? And and I believe that a sort of neat categorization into either resistance to Western medicine or a complete appropriation of Western medicine is is not really uh, helpful in understanding the complexity of this uh, situation.
1: Mm. No, I think the nuance is very helpful to bring into the conversation. So thank you for taking us through kind of the different approaches and the conflicting, as you said, the in-betweenness, I think is a helpful word here if we then think you know you've moved us up to about 1900 um you talk about in the book that around this time we see very much a surge of popularity of vegetarianism and that this is also linked to sort of concerns you've already discussed a little bit around the quality the standards of slaughterhouses how do we kind of see these together how do we understand them building on what you've told us before especially in the context of What is animal cruelty versus protectionism?
0: Right. All right. So I'm going to talk a bit about, uh, you know, the the dietary practices uh, of the Bengal and then sort of going to tie it to slaughterhouses and concerns about cruelty and protectionism. All right. So. So if we take a look at uh, the dietary practices of the Bengalis from the late 19th um, to the early 20th centuries, we notice that it's a very sort of, uh, how to put it, sort of a a meandering, let's say meandering trajectory. You know that with uh, rapid urbanization, with emergence of Western notions of health and hygiene and science that I just discussed, uh, you know, we see this sort of uneasy tensions about what constituted proper diet, right? Uh, and uh, the Bengali Hindu middle class began to ceaselessly debate the desirability or the undesirability of meat eating, and uh, give out a certain call for vegetarianism. So let me start with uh, the 1900s and then I'm going to, you know, sort of move on to, uh, you know, the early uh, 20th uh, century so that it's sort of easier for us to grasp the transition from, uh, you know, meat-based diet towards a vegetarianism, right, in terms of a historical um, chronology. All right, so, uh, so if you look at 19th century, uh, the British of the early 19th century were sort of renowned for their extravagant consumption of meat, which cost very little in India. Uh, and and we know that there have been studies on it. Elizabeth Collingham writes about it in uh, Imperial Bodies. David Burton uh, talks about how diet and dress often became, you know, these sort of cultural sites on which um, uh, a sort of bodily difference between the British and their Indian subjects can be uh, sustained, right? So, so meat meant a very masculine, uh, physically superior British Raj. Now, uh, if you take a look at the Bengalis, uh, in Bengal, uh, while the British glorified themselves as sort of manly, masculine for the love of sport, uh, the rice-eating Bengali babu was often stereotyped by the British to be effeminate, right? And, and that's several historians, not, well, not several Historians like Pranali Nisinha have investigated how the trope of effeminacy against the British was constructed by the British to sort of justify the domination over the unmanly Indians. So we do know that from the uh, 1880s onwards, roughly uh, among the rice-eating Babus, uh, uh, perhaps as a sort of reply to sort of Western charges of emasculation, there was a proliferation of medical journals that emphasized the Bengali need for consuming animal protein. You know, and you see several examples of this in some of the medical journals like Shastu Shomachar and uh, Bishak Dorpon and all of these. Now, uh, in terms of the economics of meat consumption, uh, we do not know if this propaganda for increased meat consumption immediately boosted the demands for meat. But from the mid-19th century, roughly from the 1850s, 60s onwards, indeed, official records or archival records show that a large number of cattle were being brought from the several districts of Bengal, you know, Berdwan and Nodia and Hooghly, to the metropolis, which is to Calcutta, for the purpose of being slaughtered. And the slaughter of an increasing number of cattle to provide meat for the Calcuttans, people of Calcutta, tended to uh, diminish the supply of cattle for agricultural uses and tended to raise its price. And uh, so the cattle traders of uh, the certain market in Calcutta complained the cattle have become rare, the butchers are buying up all the cattle of the country, right? And this increasing demand for meat meant that uh, your your question, which is uh, meant that this innumerable Unlicensed slaughterhouses came up in different parts of Calcutta, you know, and this is when slaughterhouses came to attract a huge amount of attention from among the government, the local residents, the CSPCA, and the Bengali literati. Right. So, so what's exactly what did the Bengali padrolog, uh, which is the middle class, have to say about slaughterhouses? So in order to understand that, we need to quickly go back to that emphasis on meat-eating that I earlier talked about, that if in the, uh, you know, in the mid-19th century, the, the Bengali middle class or the Pajralog discourse on meat-eating stemmed from a desire to sort of counter charges of emasculation, this discourse had shifted by the beginning of the next century. As we move more towards the 20th century, we notice the strong sort of Push towards vegetarianism instead of a meat diet. Now, uh, the, now, a compelling force in favor of vegetarianism in India has always been uh, the ethical and the religious one, right? I mean, the concept of ahimsa, non violence that I just discussed earlier, has a long history in the country. Uh, upper caste Hindus and the Vaishnavs and Jains uh, do not eat meats. And so such perceptions, uh, Buddhist, Vaishnav, Hindu, Jain, have a long history in the country. And so the propaganda for privileging vegetarianism should not really surprise us. But what is surprising historically is a sort of sharp shift in this discourse from an emphasis on meat eating to vegetarianism within a very short span of few years. You know, vegetarianism is now the new mantra. And... What is new is that now we see that the champions of vegetarianism are no longer defending it from ethical, from purely ethical or religious grounds. Rather, the focus among the Bengali doctors had begun to shift towards the practical need for detecting unwholesome meat. Meat was suddenly considered to be responsible for all sorts of diseases like tuberculosis and skin disorders and a bunch of writings that I found you know, that appeared in Bengali uh, health periodicals that sort of reflect this uh, collective paranoia. For instance, in 1916, there's tons of um, articles where this gentleman, uh, Maniklan Monlik, writes that, uh, you know, in addition to determining whether the human body is meant for meat consumption, we need to inspect the meat. And he builds up the scientific claim by borrowing from medical surgeons in London to argue that the human body is not suitable for meat consumption. Uh, My favorite is actually, again, from 1916, uh, this uh, writer, an anonymous writer, uh, writes this piece called Mangshed Bishukriya, which can be translated as unwholesome meat, where he cites examples of slaughterhouses in Brooklyn Yards, uh, New York, you know, and argues that when medical scientists in New York are campaigning for vegetarianism, then why should we Indians influenced by the British uh, continuously devour whatever is served in this british style restaurant right so uh, it was really tempting for me to wonder if these uh you know these men are uh influenced are reading sinclair 's Jungle. That is published roughly the same time, 1906, uh, but I couldn't find any direct reference to that. But the question is what caused the shift, sudden shift, and sort of spiraling back to your question? Uh, we did take a long detour, but uh, and, and what does this shift sort of bring to the story of colonialism? And uh, I argue that the vegetarian propaganda of the late 19th and early 20th century was not mediated as much by uh, concerns towards animal, although they sort of uh, employed a more protectionist paradigm, but it's largely disease. It's the cattle plague and ringer pest that created panic among the Bengali middle class and the government and strongly you know, sort of influenced the discourse. And uh, although I couldn't find direct quantitative evidence as to how much diseased meat is being sold, But obviously, there are reasons for us to believe that the sick animals uh, regularly sort of, uh, you know, enter the market for the simple reason that it's more profitable to sell for the farmers to sell their cattle uh, than sort of seek any, uh, you know, any medical veterinary attention. And and veterinary science is also pretty unreformed in the, you know, in the nineteenth century. So uh, farmers would often sell it to the butchers when the infected animals began to show any signs of uh, the disease. So what I'm trying to do here is that uh, I'm looking at the the debates on nutrition, uh, and uh, sort of uh, showing how this is also a very uh, scientific. There's also very scientific language to it. Because uh, historians like uh, Utsa Ray, for instance, and sociologists like Jayanta Gupta have sort of uh, examined the Bengali middle class debate on nutrition and arguing how it became a cultural question. It was a marker of your civilization. You know, it had a nationalist, um, it was a nationalist question. But I'm arguing that it's also scientific, you know and by sort of relying on a lot of these sort of non governmental archive these health journals and medical periodicals and pamphlets i sort of attempt to uh you know retrieve the idiom in which the anxieties of of, of vegetarianism and meat were gradually being articulated hmm. right i think i'm going to stop here <laughs> Well, I'd love to ask you um, to add a
1: bit to this discussion, um, in addition to what you've already so helpfully explained for us, um, because this debate about disease, about nutrition, about um, kind of all these, as you said, the anxieties coming together, how are gender, caste and religion involved in these debates?
0: Right. This is actually a very fascinating story, uh, the gendered language of it also. So uh, we do have to remember that, uh, you know, that we are looking at uh, a social class that is primarily uh, upper caste, Hindu and male. Right. So the anxieties uh, surfaced among the Bengali middle class who now began to debate caste and religious transgressions over unclean food, right? Unclean being meat, for instance. Uh, again, uh, you you see this gentleman uh, Kanailal Mukherjee writes in the early 20th century, and, and and raises a very delicate question that, and I'm quoting him. I mean, the original uh, sort of writing is in is in Bangla Bengali, but I'm translating it. That according to the shastras. Will a Hindu gentleman lose his caste if he consumed unclean food in um, desh So the word Mlecha is a Sanskrit word that means foreigner. So it could be taken to mean a non-Aryan, uh, they would call barbarians. So uh, I'm assume, assuming that Net Chodesh implied England, right? So this essay garnered a great amount of interest and Bengalis uh, you know, began to feel that an authoritative decision ought to be arrived at over this question in the larger interest of Hindu society that should we eat meat or not? So there is a sort of unease about eating meat, which was very exclusionary in nature, You know, you you asked about religion and gender and caste, and we see that feature very prominently because uh, they would argue that Muslims eat meat and they get tuberculosis and skin disorders. I don't really know why they would uh, use tuberculosis to stigmatize Muslims, uh, but this is something, a refrain that runs through uh, much of these uh, texts. So this sort of fear of contamination, you know, with lower castes and Muslims and meat causes uh, kushtorog, which is leprosy, right? And, and what I found fascinating uh, is also, as I mentioned at the very beginning, are the cookbooks that you see during this period. In fact, um, in the early 20th century, actually from the late uh, 19th century onward, thanks to print capitalism, we witnessed a sort of boom in vernacular uh, cookbooks you know and uh, in these cookbooks particularly in the early 20th century we see um, these uh, many of bengali middle class uh, women vouching for veget- vegetarianism and the language of it is so colorful and so interesting my personal favorite is this well known uh, cookbook writer uh, Shunduri devi who sort of builds this fantastical tale to argue that meat was unholy. You know, she argues that meat is oshurer khaddo Oshur means demon and khaddo is food. So meat is the food of the demon, right? So in this interesting uh, colourful gendered language of vegetarianism, we see references to myth, we see references to folklore and epics, right? So if, if meat was a demon's diet, there uh, also sort of valorized the ancient uh, sages for their faith in herbs and vegetables. And then the very next moment, she would go on to talk about how the human dental structure are not meant for meat consumption, you know? So there's this sort of interesting, very beautiful sort of blending of science with myth and legends in their, in their mental worlds that I feel uh, made the Bengalis such a sort of curious uh, you know, hybrid uh, creature in many ways, and uh, and 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 in many ways theoretically also the in betweenness that I spoke about earlier. I feel that theoretically it also sort of you know contradicts the notion of a very rigid private versus public dichotomy, you know, the privates being the world of women and home and tradition, and public being the world of men and politics and statecraft and science. Because you see that through these cookbooks and their understanding of diet and disease, uh, these women often crossed the boundaries of home so seamlessly by sort of taking refuge in science and myths and folklores.
1: Some fascinating combinations indeed. Um, Thank you for adding that into our discussion so far. Staying on the topic of the debate about slaughterhouses and the anxieties around them, but moving away from the myths um, and the home into some really kind of practical on the ground aspects. How did this whole debate and process really impacts the literal spatial configuration where things are in the city of Kolkata?
0: Yeah uh, that, that's an excellent question. Uh so uh I would like to talk about, you know, the how this debate on episiotics and diet sort of led to a spatial, you know, reconfiguration of the cities, urban spaces, not just in terms of its sort of move away from the city, but also in terms of the slaughterhouse architecture. So let me uh, uh sort of uh go over it by uh starting with uh, the 19th century. Uh, so in the 19th century, as I just mentioned, uh, that with increasing urbanization, the need for public hygiene had become a very pressing sort of imperative, right? Sanitary commissioners came up all over the city and the entire discourse of cleanliness was sort of a divided Along uh, the lines of race, right? Europe versus uh, um, the native town, right? European hygienic enclaves that had to be guarded from the insanitary, swampy black towns that were inhabited by the native population. So, literally, the white town and the black town. However, in the mid 19th century, this spatial segregation of the city into the black town and the white town seemed no longer uh, to hold weight. Because if the air of the city was poison, and here I'm sort of referring to the miasma theory, which sort of reminds me of the swamps and miasma of a Dickens novel, you know, then, then if no one is exempt from disease, right? And in this new sort of uh, climatic uh, paradigm, concern for slaughterhouses emerged as an sort of agenda of sanitation and public hygiene, So you see that um, throughout the 1860s, you have the civil assistant surgeon of Bengal declaring that sanitation is a matter of common sense. And again, I'm quoting him, the highly civilized man keeps the city clean and in doing so becomes a sanitarian. 1864, you see the sanitary commissioner for Bengal complaining that Calcutta was a scandal and disgrace to civilized government because it didn't have a proper slaughterhouse. So, so to answer your question, uh, you know, if what I do here, what I would like to do here is sort of pull these stories together. And so what we have here is uh, cattle being brought to the slaughterhouses that are springing up in increasing numbers and a sentiment of compassion towards animals that uh, sort of we discussed earlier, right, that finds expression or institutional legitimacy in the CSPCA that is also becoming quite vocal in demanding a proper slaughterhouse for the city in Calcutta. So at this point, I think it's sort of useful to study the slaughterhouse as a historical site where these competing forces converge and clash, right? And you see uh, sort of multiple concerns. One would be humanitarian concern from the CSPCA that pleaded to the lieutenant governor that, you know, the brutal Methods of slaughter are repugnant to the Christian feelings and views. There were medical concerns that came flooding in because, for the British doctors, it's a method of slaughter that was, uh, you know, repulsive. That halal or the double cut epitomised Mohammedan barbarity, and I'm quoting them: uh, "That is a perfect symbol of Oriental backwardness." And uh, Joseph Ewart, for instance, the presidency surgeon of Calcutta, argued that the English method of instant death, that is, you know, the, you, you, to strike the animal uh, with a poleaxe which is followed by immediate bleeding from the jugular, uh, is, is a perfectly painless method of death, and that's the way to go. Uh, we also see notions of uh, hygiene and cleanliness, as I mentioned earlier, when the locals complained of the filth and the stench and all of that. To the government's sanitary gaze, as I've already pointed out, slaughterhouses were the sites of uh you know barbarity, the epitomized the barbarity of Mohammedan butchers and their an aesthetic mode of animal slaughter, the halal, right? So, in many ways, what we see is that the slaughterhouses became a sort of key site for regulating and determining the boundaries between what constituted clean and unclean, European and Indian. And the changing to and diet that we just discussed uh, uh, sort of impacted the slaughterhouses, which are part of the urban fabric of Calcutta. Because in the mid-19th century, uh, private slaughterhouses represented an urban nuisance that had to be cleansed and a source of cruelty, which is halal, that had to be repressed. You know, so till then, official concerns revolved more around the physical space of the city, right? To sort of answer your question, because it debated where do you establish the slaughterhouse? Should it be inside the city? Should it be outside the city? Should we follow the example of the Paris abattoir? But by the early 20th century, the emergence of zoonotic or rinderpest as a zoonotic disease sort of recast the interest in slaughterhouses. And although their anti-cruelty dimension remains important, although their humanitarian dimension was important, a new language of meat control began to take over attempts to regulate them, particularly after the popularization of germ theory in the 1870s, right, that it's not the air that's poisonous, right, but it's germs or microorganisms that cause disease. And the idea is still sort of unformed at the stage that disease can jump from animals to humans, but there is a sort of understanding that epizootics are contagious and uh, they sort of sp- are spread by the transmission of some sort of disease matter, So the focus is now more on slaughterhouse architecture, you know, constructing walls. How do you conduct uh, inspection of meat? right and to look at the ground reality uh, as you asked so by the early by by the early 20th century in fact if you go back to that larger story of what's happening on the ground we see that examination of meat had indeed become a regular feature of local uh, public health work you know uh, sanitary inspectors were appointed a veterinary inspector was appointed from 1906 I believe right I mean meat ex- inspection is still pretty chaotic uh, because because the middle class also have very little political power or representations at this stage. Uh, But nonetheless, there are sort of attempts to reform uh, meat trade and meat inspection. And by 1920, a civil veterinary department is formed uh, when the story changes altogether, and which is where my story also ends. we're not done talking about the book
1: uh, because I have more I'd like to ask you about Um, Something we've not focused on we've not discussed yet but I'd really like us to because it forms a fascinating part of the book is the Carter Strike in, I believe, 1862 Can you walk us through what some of the many significances are of this event? Yes, of course
0: so uh the Carter strike in uh 19th and uh let's let's start with the carters actually you know the carters in the 19th and 20th century Calcutta were a pretty uh sort of uh sort of volatile group that often rebelled against colonial authorities uh and you know occasionally they would sort of uh refuse to pay taxes on their bullock cuts. so i focused largely on the Carter Strike of 1862, but even before 1862, there were the sort of mini strikes led by them in the city of Calcutta. For instance, in June, uh, I believe, 1849, um, there was a tax levied on Calcutta's, uh, you know, Ikka Gadis or the bullock Cards, and the bullock cart drivers unanimously refused to drive their cars, right? And this was widely reported in Bengali newspapers like the Shongbad Bhashkar that sort of condoned the unprecedented solidarity of the carters, uh, which then contrasted with the factionalism within the Bengali middle class. So what I'm trying to say is that there's a sort of prehistory to sort of such acts of resistance by the Carters, right? And so if you fast forward then to 1860s, 1861, we see a few uh, legislations. Like the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals Act and Stage Carriages Act of 1861, you know, for licensing and regulating stage carriages. So, these acts made it a punishable offense to cruelly beat, ill treat, torture, abuse any animals, and particularly draft animals, is what we're looking at. So uh, the laws invested magistrates with the power of punishing those who were both directly and indirectly responsible for inflicting cruelty upon draft animals. All right. So the next few weeks since the passing of the, the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals Act was sort of devoted to, to sending warning signals throughout the city of Calcutta. You know, there are thousands of pamphlets distributed among the drivers and the owners of bullock carts and uh, carriage horses and huge Bengali posters were put up in different parts of the city to attract the attention of the native community. Right, and, and and what's interesting, we, what we have to keep in mind is that uh, you know the act was directed towards the carters and the drivers, and not really the you know the merchants or the middlemen and the traders that ran uh, much of these businesses. Was, right, so uh, so one morning in July eighteen sixty two, uh, several carters, uh, bullock carts primarily, refused to ply their carts. And the entire city of Calcutta came to an halt for almost four days. So I use the Carter strike to sort of uh, as a sort of flashpoint to sort of tease out the tensions inherent in us colonial society. Uh, I argue that it stands as historically significant because it reveals a sort of complex false lines within the society. You know, that the human and the non-human subalterns, the carters and the bullocks found their faith sort of intertwined in a very selective uh, protectionist uh, crusade so so there are two aspects of it or I, uh, let's say it's sort of uh, uh, one would be the more sort of judicial and the cultural control of animals uh, and related to issues of control and submission in a in a in a in a colonial context. And the other is the sort of reflection of class anxieties and race divides and tensions within a colonial uh, society. So with the Carter Strikes of 1862, the burdened animal, the overworked animal sort of re-enters official discourse, you know, and it sort of triggered a new urgency to this entire discourse of animal protection. Officials now started debating how much cruelty constituted too much what exactly is overloading? How much torture was too much? You know, how do you quantify torture? How do you quantify pain and suffering? And going back to Jeremy Bentham, you know, what draft animals should have sun protectors? Is it the heart? Is it the bullocks? Should we have fountains for the horses because it's more privileged or should we just let go of the bullocks, right? So so should we replicate English laws or does the Indian situation demand more stringent measures of control? So there's that going on, but uh, what I find also interesting is how, as I mentioned earlier, how the strikes sort of expose the fissures within a colonial society very neatly, you know, and I argue that why we notice similar class bias in the animal protectionism in India as in England. However, uh, if we read closer, uh, you know, the literature published by the CSPCA, we notice a more complex and ambivalent reality than what the class thesis merely suggests. Um so uh, you know colonial anti cruelty laws conveniently prosecute, persecuted the cutters and the butchers and the pet dealers that depended on animals for livelihood, but they rarely lifted a finger towards the Bengali elites that fancied caging you know birds as 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 uh pets all right so uh uh so so uh so so this sort of uh ambivalence is uh, sort of, uh, you know, pervasive uh, throughout, uh, uh, you know, the Carter strike. And I sort of try to tease out uh, these uh, sort of tensions.
1: Mm. No, very, very useful to point out um, and to help us understand because that idea of colonial ambivalence in a lot of ways runs kind of throughout everything we've talked about. So if we kind of zoom zoom out and put them together, right? Rinderpest Control, Slaughterhouse Inspection, Carter Strikes. Can we think of all of them as outcomes of colonial ambivalence?
0: Yes, absolutely, Miranda. Uh, and so my book uh, is sort of centered around three major uh, stories, right? As you mentioned, uh, the rinterpest where animals are diseased, slaughterhouses as in animals are eaten and overworked, which is what we just discussed, the Carter strikes. And uh, as you rightly pointed out, you know, the connecting thread that sort of weaves the stories together is is this sort of larger argument of, of ambivalence, you know, that the colonial project of animal protection mirrored an irony. You know, that emerging notions of public health and debates on cruelty against animals sort of exposed the uh, disjunction between the claims of a very benevolent and kind empire that seeks to protect its non-human animals. And a very powerful sort of imperial reality where the state constantly sought to, you know, uh, discipline its subjects, both humans and uh, non-humans. And and, and we see that tension in in all the three, uh, you know, stories that I have discussed. Uh, Slaughterhouses become the perfect colonial irony uh, that on one hand the demand for meat-eating increases and yet there's an increasing appeal for kindness towards this very animals slaughtered. And in the entire discourse, the animal was no longer the focus because uh, the focus had shifted towards, you know, public health and hygiene and disease. And I also uh, sort of point out the ambivalence of the middle class. And uh, I wanted to draw you know, this, I wanted to sort of uh, use this one particular um, example, a very intriguing essay that was published uh, in a medical journal, a Bengali medical journal called The Punno by Ramendra Tribedi, who was a physics teacher in Ripon College in Calcutta. And he writes in the early 20th century and sort of uh, and, and no one really uh, let's say, better mm, epitomizes the Bengali ambivalence towards uh, their diet than Tripedi. Uh, you know, he becomes this perfect example of a dichotomy as he's sort of caught between Western science and Hindu ahimsa. And he notes with pride that non-injury to living beings and ahimsa and non-violence originated in India and not in the Christian lands of uh, Europe, that it's a very innate Hindu virtue that you don't kill the animals that you love. But he's also deeply aware of an inbuilt ambivalence in Vedic and Brahminical animal sacrifices, you know. And eventually, he seeks refuge in the claims of science. And he concludes that... uh, Concludes by hoping that one day humans with the aid of science will be strong enough not to eat meat anymore. So, sort of nonviolence and science are sort of fascinatingly enmeshed in his optimism as he waits for the day when science would conquer violence. So so what is this science that he talks about? Is it a science that grows in a colonial milieu? And uh, indeed, this very question, you know, what is colonial about colonial science has engaged scholars for over decades. It was first raised by Shula Marx and then Warwick Anderson. And so my research and my book uh, sort of attests to the story of how the Bengali middle class often mediated the language of science in their understanding of meats and food adulteration, but again, the larger in-betweenness and the ambivalence that I would like to point out, in that their interaction with the West ranged from assimilation, experimentation, to transformation. They they defended the knowledge systems like the Vedas and the Upanishads and did not believe that the tradition was unscientific or irrational. However, they did also strongly believe that there was nothing really wrong in learning from new knowledge, you know. And I think it's this interesting moment of borrowing that scholars often tend to overlook. For instance, uh, Prajit uh, Mukherjee, uh, who's written extensively, on daktari medicine and Western medicine and science uh, talks about how there is this sort of tendency in South Asian scholarship to often look at Western medicine as a repressive force, you know. So we tend to sort of overlook uh, uh, its sort of productive role, you know, in constituting new, new, new subject positions and new identities, and and, and that's what I have tried to do. In my research, that in my study of uh, Bengali anxieties about meat and inspection and human health and science, I have attempted to sort of, you know, switch or shift gears to examine their sort of productive moments of encounter with the West. And I demonstrate that in this course of this sort of meandering trajectory, there are moments when the West talked hegemonically to the East. For instance, you know, repudiating halal, is symptomatic of Mohammedan barbarity and all of that. Uh, but the but the Bengali middle class also translated Western notions of science and medicine into their own mental worlds, and they were not just a passive recipient. You know, so speaking of colonial ambivalence, I think that uh, that, that the that the middle class actively imbibing Western traditions. Uh, were sort of caught in an in-betweenness, right? And the hybridization that I keep going back to, that on one hand, they cling on to their Upanishads and Vedas and the Oshurs and the demons. And, the, uh, and on the other hand, they draw from the London Vegetarian Society and science and experiments conducted on children and the dental health and all of that, uh, as they give sort of voice to this dichotomy. So uh, the middle class is sort of a classic um, figure of uh, simultaneous figure, let's say of assimilation and discontent of privilege and, and subordination. And and therefore, and theoretically also, to go back to the question of ambivalence, what I'm trying to do is that whether I'm trying to suggest if it is possible for us to sort of get out of the binary of hegemony or uh, resistance to show that perhaps there were moments of both you know there is a possibility of both existing uh, in their in the Paluxs negotiation with the West as a fashioned uh, sort of new kind of uh, medical modernity.
1: Hmm. I think that speaks um, really clearly to what I found to be one of the main kind of big picture points of the book of its nuance. It's multiple things at once. It's not sort of a black and white us versus them. There's a lot going on here. Um, And there's a lot of different approaches from multiple communities. There's not just one point of view or one group of actors. Um, So no, that that's a fabulous way to kind of, I think, close off our discussion of the book, but not quite yet the end of the interview, because if you don't mind, I have one final question. Um, This is obviously something you've been working on for quite a long time. You introduced us at the beginning to kind of the origins of this, even before your graduate studies. Um, But it is done now. So is there anything you might be working on now or next whether or not it's a book whether or not it's on this exact topic you'd like to share with us
0: yes of course i'm actually pretty excited about my uh you know next project uh i'm so i'm working on an edited volume on technologies of knowledge which is scheduled to be released uh this year uh but my next book is going to be on a history of the body so, I'm working on uh, the anatomical and the spectral body in colonial Bengal. And I uh, sort of intend to situate this book at the intersection of uh, death studies. And histories of science and medicine. So, primarily investigating the many lives of the dead in colonial Bengal, you know, buried and burnt and cremated, exhumed, dissected, haunted, you know, the deviant dead, the uncivilized body, the black body, to sort of analyze the larger historical processes through which the native corpse emerged as a cadaver in the British Empire. Because if you see, by the late 19th century, the dead had come to acquire a life of their own. You know, this newly emerging sanitary city of Calcutta demanded clean burial practices, decontaminated dispatch vans, and uh, standardized mortuary returns. But along with this sort of systematization of burial and burning practices, the outbreak of disease and the haunting paranoia of death in the 19th century rural countryside, provided a suitable ground for reading of innumerable ghost stories. So so did the advent of colonial modernity banish the uncanny away from the cities? You know, so drawing on a vast range of sources, uh, from the colonial archive of municipal reports and mortuary archaeology, and medical textbooks to the to the more vernacular archive of Bengali science novels and medical tracts and paintings, I, I'm trying to examine how the urban and sort of scientific body or anatomical body. And the rural, sort of the more, you know, irrational, uncanny body often coexisted in in colonial Bengal. And, uh, you know, in this sort of uh, web of entanglement between the living and the dead, I'm trying to study how conflicts over race and gender, caste and religion, funeral and cremation practices, science and tradition... Or perhaps the symptoms uh, of an empire that sort of claimed to reign supreme uh, legal, medical and moral authority over its dead. So, yeah, um, that's that's to be my yeah, current <laughs> well-
1: that's exciting. Thank you for giving us that little preview. Um, and while you are working on it, of course, listeners can read the book we've been discussing, titled Meat, Mercy and Morality: Animals and Humanitarianism in Colonial Bengal, published by Oxford University Press in 2023. Sami Parna, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
0: Thank you so much, Miranda. I, I absolutely enjoy the conversation. Thank you so much for having me.